Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Just making some space up here. Hi, I'm Andy, if I don't know you. Uh, I'm a teacher Old Testament here, and for the next six months, I'm acting principal. Uh, please pray for me and us. Um, in that, that'd be great. Um, I, I don't want you to think too highly of me, so I'm going to share uh, what I watch as a, a TV viewing habit with you right now, uh, which is The Bachelor. Thank you. Um, my wife and I are into that. You may think that Ridley lecturers go home and just read the Bible until they fall asleep at 2am. Uh, not so, at least not with me and my house. As for us, uh, me and my house, we, we watch The Bachelor. So um, I, I think we've done... Um, uh, I think we've done all 11 seasons of The Bachelor, possibly most of the seven seasons of The Bachelorette. Flick is like, I just don't believe that we... <laughs> yeah. Um, look, there's been... Who could... I mean, some of you are with me. I know uh, I, I, see some, I see some recognition in the crowd. Um, who could forget the Honey Badger season with Nick Cummins um, in the final episode dumping both Sophie and Brittany at once uh, in that tragic upset? Or the moment when um, Georgia Love... Broke Maddie J's heart live on television, uh, bowled over by the, the physical pain of emotional distress. Uh, all the controversies like the Sophie Monk season and the great uh, true crime crossover of who peed in um, Blake's, uh, no, no, uh, what was it, Jared's blo- uh, beloved pot plant. Do you remember that? No, of course not. You were reading the Bible until 2 a.m. <laughs> Now, why do, I, why do I mention that? Um, if, I mean, partly just this is an opportunity for me to publicly question my life choices. Um, also because I think often we think of the book of Esther, and particularly chapter two, like an episode of The Bachelor, right? You've got Osher Ginsburg slash Hegai uh, kind of with uh, looking after the women. You've got this, um, you know, a powerful king has everything in the world, but looking for love. And so they have a beauty contest. In fact, my daughter, Chloe, she has a a children's Bible where it is actually described as a beauty pageant, which is the most inaccurate (laughs) way imaginable of trying to describe this story. Um, Understand why they did that, because the reality is that the story of Esther is nothing nothing to do with the beauty pageant. It's nothing to do uh, with uh, an episode of The Bachelor. It's It's actually quite dark. And so just a warning here, we're going to be uh, wrestling with just some of the ickiest stuff uh, that humans are capable of in today's chapter. I think we'll see in the end that God is good and God is with us, but just a warning that, I mean, this is not a nice story. Uh, King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, as is uh, known in Greek, he's not a charming bachelor who just hasn't met the right woman. In fact, he already has a wife, uh, Vashti, if you know the story from chapter one, but he got rid of her because um, essentially she said no to him when he tried to parade her um, probably in a state of some undress in front of his drunk mates, right? She says, no, you're not going to treat me, the queen, like another member of your harem, which is essentially what he was doing, right? So for standing up to the king, he obviously uh, is, uh, has a fragile ego because he, he just decides, you know, we, we just need to get rid of Vashti and find another queen, someone who will perform for my friends the way that a member of my harem would. So he doesn't want a queen, he doesn't want a queen. Normally, by the way, this is not how this kind of beauty pageant thing is not how you would find a queen anyway. Right? Like to find a queen, normally that's an international diplomatic mission. Okay, so um, 
we want submarines from the United States of America, so Anthony Albanese would marry his daughter off to Joe Biden's son, right? And that's how we get the nukes, okay? That's how, that's how marriage works in the ancient world. I'm not saying it's good, but that's how it would work, right? It's a diplomatic thing, right? And, and as a queen, you have certain rights and privileges that a member of the harem um, doesn't have, okay? So you, you're a queen, you're royal stock. There's a way that you can and can't be treated. Whereas King Xerxes, he just wants another member of his harem, right? He has no, no interest in a wife. So he exiles Vashti, he loses his Templar, he's looking for uh, another uh, replacement queen who won't stand up to him, basically, which arrives in chapter two. I think the story is meant to be painting him as a pathetic character, a, a weak, pathetic character who, unfortunately for everyone else, has also a lot of power. Okay, so this uh, is totally in line, by the way, with the, the picture of historical Xerxes that we get from the Bible. So after um, kind of uh, watching The Bachelor, I need a bit of kind of like just to calm my, my mind from the intellectual stimulation of that. So um, I've been reading Herodotus, um, a bit just to calm my mind as I get to sleep, because it's, you know, it's very exciting watching The Bachelor. And in Herodotus, they actually talk about Xerxes. And this is totally, the story in Esther is totally true to form for, for Xerxes. Right, there's one story in Herodotus about Xerxes where basically he falls in lust with um, the, the daughter of his uh, brother, right? And so con kind of conspires, sorry, with the, the wife of his brother and then conspires therefore to bring um, them into his house by marrying his son to the, the daughter, right? So then gets his sister-in-law in the house, but then decides actually he doesn't want the sister-in-law, he wants the niece for himself. And, and, that, and because he's Xerxes, he's get, he gets it. Right? Here is a man who has very little regard for anyone, particularly not for women. Okay? And this is totally true to form for Xerxes, to use people as kind of human props in his own pathetic power games. Now that's Xerxes, true to form. He is shown in Esther as both quite a wicked man, but also a pathetic man. And it's, and it's a very accurate portrait. So the story we read here is not about a king looking for love. It's about a man with unchallengeable power uh, using women and getting what he wants. And so it's a dark story. Um, the other um, reason that this is not a, a beauty pageant, right, is that the, the plan that the young men in the palace come up with uh, is, is not a beauty pageant. Let's have a look at exactly what's going on here and maybe just kind of look uh, a little bit between the lines. So reading um, uh, verse uh, 2, um, the, the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be uh, placed under the charge of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young, women who, young woman who pleases the king be brought, be uh, queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, I said this is an interesting plan. Normally, if you're forging an international alliance, it's actually kind of a different process here. This is really um, how you can script a harem, and he's using this to find a new queen. At which point, enter into the story Esther, this young uh, Judean girl, an exile. We're told twice or, or more that she's an exile, um, from Judea, a long way from home. Um, now, this is in the Persian period. So actually, some of the people who were exiled to Babylon were able to return home to Judea under the Persian 
kind of change in policy, but very few did. It was kind of your weird religious uncle right, who went home to Judea. Everyone else just stayed where they were because they had a life, right? So a lot of people just stayed or they just you know, they kind of, they were busy, right? So they stayed in exile and lived under the, the Persian rule wherever they were. So this is where we meet this orphaned Judean girl, Esther, and her cousin Mordecai. I think I have a, a portrait of Esther, maybe two slides from here. That's not Esther. That's Lexi. There we go. This orphan uh, Esther. Um, and so in a way, she really represents the people of Judea as a whole, isn't they? They're orphaned. They're without a home. Right? They're rather without a protector in the world. Uh, just uh, unprotected, no father, no fa uh, mother, no home, like Israel itself. Uh, and living secretly in a foreign land. Interesting to see their names, right? So Mordecai is from the Babylonian god's name Marduk, right? So this is like meeting a Jewish person called Muhammad, right? Something has happened in the story of that family that they are living in exile under a foreign god name. Uh, Esther's name actually is Hadassah, which means myrtle in Hebrew, but she's not known as that. She's known as Esther, which is probably from the Babylonian god Ishtar, okay? So um, they're really um, incognito in exile, Okay, And the one rule that Mordecai has given Esther growing up is don't tell anyone who you are. Right? Don't let anyone know that you are a Judean who worships Yahweh. And Mordecai feared, and I think we find out as we read through Esther, not without cause, he feared that if anyone found out who they were, that would create trouble for, for them. There would be this sort of anti-Semitic um, kind of risk for them living in this foreign country as Judeans. So they just settle down, don't tell anyone who they are, keep to themselves, and probably as a result weren't keeping kosher. Okay, so they probably, they have probably compromised this point is worth pointing out. But the narrator doesn't tell us what to think about that, which is also interesting. It's not really like, you know, and Mordecai did a terrible thing by not standing up and making a stand for, for, for God. Um, you know, Esther did a terrible thing by eating non-kosher food. It's not a focus of the story in the way it is in Daniel, where they make a big deal about the fact that they don't eat the food. Um, it's a complicated situation. They're doing what they need to do to survive. And the question will be when push comes to shove later, will Esther make a stand for who she is? Will she stand up when push comes to shove? But right now, yeah, it's, I mean, she's not being a hero at this point in the story, right? Compare this to Daniel, right? Who's kind of, even if you kill me, I will not give in. Well, no, this is I like Esther because she's just a lot more like me, I think. She's just kind of, I'm not, I'm not as beautiful, perhaps. Um, but, yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not a Daniel. I'm not like, yeah, give me more, more lions, more fire, more, you know. I think Esther's a much more relatable character in some ways. So I'm glad that she's in the Bible as well. They're complex, three-dimensional um, characters. And I think that's... Like, I like that God uses these much more complex characters as well as the, the really brave ones. Because do you know what? Sometimes it is hard to be brave. All right? Maybe we're just not naturally built like that. Maybe someone asks you, oh, so what do you do on Sunday? Like, yeah, I went to Melbourne Central. Hoyts, Cinema 11, where we have church. Uh, you know, sometimes that's it's actually hard to like, you know, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a teacher. Just hope for no follow-up questions. I mean, it is tempting, right? Because like saying, well, I train people for Anglican ministry, which is kind of a strange thing. Like, you know, I train Vikings or something. It's like, <laughs> what does it even mean? Do you know what I mean? It's hard sometimes to stand up. And I think 
If you kind of feel like an unlikely candidate for a superhero drama involving God and great empires and crazy kings, then Esther's for you. I mean, maybe, I don't know how you feel in like week one of semester at Ridley. Maybe you feel like you're the least likely person God should have chosen to serve you here. Maybe Jess just let you in by accident. Like some kind of administrative error. That never happens in the registry, by the way. Right, so this is an impossible thought. But you know, maybe in some fluke, you know, Jess and admissions just let you in and you're not meant to be here. You're not like all the others. You weren't kind of raised from age four speaking Koine Greek, right? You didn't kind of go to um, kind of Sutz camp since you were eight days old. Um, you don't even know what Sutz camp is, which is sort of part of my point, right? You, maybe you don't feel like you are the obvious candidate to be serving God in these ways. Maybe you just don't feel like you have the ideal backstory. Maybe you only became a Christian very recently. Maybe you had a period of wandering from the faith. Maybe you weren't baptized by Billy Graham and personally mentored by Peter Adam. <laughs> okay, these things are possible, right? That you're sitting here thinking, I hope no one finds out these things. Or maybe you're just a little bit afraid of doing ministry in a world where it's no longer just strange to be a minister, to be a preacher, to be a Bible teacher. It's actually immoral. Maybe you don't want people to find out that on your sabbatical you were studying the Bible because they might ask questions at your workplace. I know um, people at my church have actually asked us not to um, publicly name them in connection with our church because they're worried what that might mean for their job prospects. Right? Maybe you feel a little bit like you're not meant to be a hero. Or maybe you just feel like your life circumstances are getting in the way. Maybe you struggle with mental ill health. Maybe you have like family care burdens that other people don't have and you just think, am I even meant to be here? Well, if any of that is at all similar to how you ever feel, please take heart and stop worrying. Please take heart and stop worrying about who you are or where you've been or what life package you bring to Ridley this semester because God's not sitting around kind of waiting to recruit perfect superhero people into his purposes, into his kingdom. If he wanted to, he could. But for whatever reason, he's chosen to use people like you, people like me, people like Esther, for his glory and for the good of his church. What a relief. Do you feel that relief? I feel that relief sometimes. Do you know what all these people have in common? Moses was a murderer who hated public speaking. How'd that end up for him? <laughs> right? Joseph started off his career by being sold into slavery by his brothers. Matthew was a traitor who sold out his people to the Romans. Mary was possessed by seven demons, which is, seems like a lot of demons <laughs> for one person. Paul had actively tried to wipe out the very message that he was commissioned to carry. Esther was a, probably a little bit afraid to tell people that she followed God. And what they all have in common, of course, is that God used them mightily. So, you know, what? I think God can probably use you too, no matter what you bring with you on your journey. A friend of mine used to sum it up like this. Just do what you best. Do, so just do your best with what you've got for God. How about that? Can you do that? Do your best with what you've got for God. Because in Christ, uh, we are called to a new identity. We're called to one based not on our lineage, not based on our heritage, not based on our past performance even, but just based on what Jesus has done for us. And 
we are called to serve him in whatever situation we find. So yeah, it does matter. You know, character matters. Right? Some degree of competence matters in Christian ministry. But you know what? We're not uh, looking for people who are baptized by Billy Graham. No, that's not, we're not looking for people with the perfect backstory. We're just looking for people who will be faithful. And like Esther, you never know when God's going to ask you to step up. Okay, so Esther's identity, it's secret. One thing, though, that she can't hide is that she is beautiful. She's, she's a beautiful woman, which is actually in the story a mixed blessing, as we find out uh, later on. God will use that to save his people. But at the moment, it's not a good thing for her when the king's edict comes out. Verse 8, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Now, I'm about to get on a hobby horse, which I, I try not to do so often when I'm preaching, but this is Ridley Chapel, so I feel like you'll forgive me. Yeah? yeah? Okay. Okay, the way people so often preach Esther makes it sound like there was some kind of advertisement, you know, a, a, a casting call, and all the young girls of Persia lined up excited for their chance to go on the reality TV show or, you know, uh, audition for the part, all vying maybe to escape poverty or, or kind of wanting to get their taste of, of royal food, you know, lining up for who wants to be the next Persian supermodel. And it's probably just nothing like that. Okay? It's, it, I mean, it's possible that some of these girls came voluntarily. It's possible. But I don't think the text is kind of pushing that that direction. Right? It's an edict, not an invitation. Right? The young women are gathered Passive verb. And Esther is taken. Okay, for those of you who are doing Hebrew, it's lakach. Right? Now, if you know that word, right, that's what you do when you capture something in war. You lakach it. So if you're lakached, I don't think you have much of a say in it. Certainly the Ark of the Lord didn't have a say in it when it was lakached. Right? And so what blows my mind is how often we preach Esther as if either this is some kind of beauty pageant or worse, I've actually heard people painting Esther as some kind of dodgy character here who later has to redeem herself because of her immorality in, in allowing herself to be brought in to the king. Because verse, again in verse 16, uh, she is taken to King Xerxes. All the other girls go in, but Esther is taken again, lakah. I don't think she had any say in it. And it blows my mind a little bit that you, you hear sermons, even to this day you hear sermons, are just so naive as to the power dynamic here. Right? There's a reason why the narrator is telling us that Esther was taken. And what disturbs me about that, and this is my second hobby horse, sorry, is if we can't even see that power dynamic here, I worry about the way that we understand the power dynamics that we end up in our world, right? I mean, there's a reason why in the Anglican uh, Faithfulness and Service Code, you are not allowed to have a sexual relationship with someone in your care. You're just not allowed to. And you see every now and then, and I've, I've been in ministry long enough that I've seen people fall into sexual, ten, sexual sin, uh, youth ministers who end up with youth group girls, uh, Pastors who end up marrying people in their congregation in an adulterous situation, and the naivety with which they speak about that. 
as if it was totally irrelevant that you were their priest or you were their bishop or you were their youth group leader. I mean, come on. Do you think the, the girls are lining up for King Xerxes because he was good looking? Because he was romantic? Oh, yeah, who doesn't want a, a spouse who you have to be invited into the chamber on fear of death, even to have a conversation? I'm sure that was a really healthy relationship. You know? Just what every, every, every woman in Persia wanted, surely be married a guy who was volatile and dangerous. All right? And yet we are so naive. And I hear people talk about it who've fallen into sin as if them being in a position of power had nothing to do with it. You are not, you are not to do that. Because while I think we often give the people in power a free pass in our circles, or at least understanding, I think God sees the dynamic and I think God judges, well, I know God judges those in positions of authority more harshly. Friends, we must not be naive about this. Anyway, Esther's taken. Um, Marion Taylor, great commentator, um, observes that now Esther is orphaned a second time. She wasn't orphaned, now she's orphaned even from her family. Mordecai has to kind of uh, arrange to come near to the, the citadel so he can like look over the fence and see how she's going. She's lost even the adopted family that she had. And there were probably, I mean, if we work out the dates, there were probably about 1,400 girls like Esther, if, if, if the king was working through one a night. Uh, there were probably 1,400 girls before Esther came along who were used in this way. But actually, the story doesn't really focus on that. Actually, the focus of the story is on what Esther does and what God does in Esther in that situation. So that's where I want to end our little expedition today into Esther. Because even in this awful situation, right, this objectively terrible, I think a sex trafficking situation, God uses Esther. And Esther, Esther plays her very badly dealt hand very well. Right, see, in verse 9, she does good in the eyes of the keeper of the women. Verse 15, she cleverly follows Hegai's advice. Verse 17, she wins grace and favour in the sight of everyone. She is able to make the most of the situation she's in. And I think we're meant to be reminded here of the story of Joseph, right, that other person who was trafficked by his uh, brothers in that circumstance, sold into slavery, dealt a terrible hand, but all the way God is with him. God is with him. And in uh, the end, that this phrase gains favour in the eyes of. When I read that a few times in this passage, I'm like, that phrase is familiar. Oh, yeah, Genesis, right? Three times Joseph gains favour in the eyes, first of his master Potiphar, then of the keeper of the, the prison, and finally of um, the Pharaoh. And in Genesis, that's a sign of God's blessing. It's not just that Joseph is smart, though he is. It's that God is with him and so he gains favour in the eyes of everyone. And I think that's a clue here, though. We're not told that God is with Esther. The fact that she gains favour in the eyes of everyone, I think, is a hint in this post-exilic world where God is hidden, that God is with Esther. And so I want to just remind us that wherever you end up, wherever culture goes, wherever your ministry takes you, whatever your personal life circumstances, you are never alone. Right? You are never alone. Not even on the other side of the world, not even taken from your family, not even in the court of the crazy Persian king. You are never alone. And I think Esther's story is here in the Bible to remind, that of, uh, remind us of that. 
And I think that's why Esther's story has been treasured by so many, because it's a reminder to us that uh, whatever the circumstances we're in, we might feel like where we're at now in our life, God is nowhere near us. Uh, maybe it's circumstances outside our control. Maybe it's decisions that we've made in the past that might have taken us down the wrong path. But either way, Esther shows us that whoever you are, whatever your backstory, wherever you find yourself, when God seems most hidden, actually that's where God does some of his best work. God does some of his best work in the darkness when he seems a far, far way away. Now, um, this is the post-exilic period, right? There is no guarantee that God is with Esther. He is. But she has no assurance of that. The Judean people have no assurance that God will be with them. But you know we do. Right? What's the name given to Jesus when he arrives? One of the names. Emmanuel. God with us. And in Matthew chapter 28, what does Jesus say? So long. Good luck. No, he says, surely I'm with you until the end of the age. And so if... God was with Esther. How much more can we be assured that God is with us? He has, after all, sent his spirit. The spirit of the living God is with us, in us, in our communities, in our lives. The presence of God himself. Still to this day, turning hearts to him. Reminding us of all that Jesus taught. Binding us together, this unlikely group of people, bound together through the Holy Spirit and empowered to serve. That's a great, great assurance. Hey, can I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for what you are doing in the world. Though sometimes you do seem hidden, we know that you are always at work. Your spirit does not stop and you will not stop drawing people to yourself. So even when we feel alone, even when we feel isolated, thank you that you are with us. Please send us out into our ministries, into our studies, into our lives just aware of how close you are to us, even though we can't always see you. In Jesus' name.